Let me pray and ask for God's help for us to understand this passage today. So let's pray. God of heaven and earth, you hold all things together. And in you, uh, we can see all that is perfect and good and holy and true. So I pray that as we open your word, that's what you would show us. You'd show us yourself. Or that you'd speak to us, um, even in a strange passage like this, um, that you would reveal your glory to us, that we might have comfort. Amen. Amen. So, it might be strange. You might be thinking, you know, bulls, wrath. Um, It's a bit far-fetched. Until you make a mistake like I have. Hannah and I, my wife Hannah, who read the passage, um, went on vacation one time, and we bought these bowls. They were awesome. They were like, they looked kind of like a cactus, like if you cut the top off of a cactus and flipped it around. Hannah loved these bowls. I did too. Um, We ended up buying another suitcase just to take the bowls with us. Um, We liked the bowls. Um, And one day when I was cooking dinner, um, in order to save time, I decided to go under the cabinet and get the bowls with one hand. And um, I nicked the top of the bowls on the countertop. And quickly, four bowls became about seven. Um, crashed to the ground, and I looked at Hannah, <laughs> trying to redeem myself, saying, at least one is still whole. <laughs> um, needless to say... I experienced a little bit of Hannah's wrath that day, Um, but she forgave me quickly, um, and uh, we're fine now, don't worry. She's great. Um, I share this story about bulls and wrath, not really to make a point other than the fact that when we come to a passage like this, we're a bit uncomfortable, (laughs) and sometimes it's a good chance to have a breather. And if you're anything like me, when Hannah was just reading this passage, it might have conjured up feelings of fear or anxiety, tension, discomfort. And maybe for the Christian, you're even ashamed of passages like this, feeling like we actually need to to hide this in the back corners of of some church uh, closet way back there. Um, Or maybe if you aren't a Christian or you've come to the church the very first time today, you're like, oh, this is one of those churches. (laughs) You know, the the fire and brimstone type. Um, But we are going to talk about God's judgment today, specifically his wrath. Um, But our passage today, like many passages in the Bible, says something about God's wrath that we don't often hear. Rather than something to shy away from, it's actually something to take comfort in. And I hope that as we look into this, we can see that. And, and though this might be uncomfortable for you to hear about God's judgment, um, and that we kind of shudder at that, I can assure you that our culture is pretty comfortable with judgment. Um, you know, me, many people see it as their duty to point out what's wrong, you know, whether It's someone who doesn't measure up, someone who doesn't say the right thing, wear the right thing, or stand for the right thing. Sound familiar? It's nearly impossible to live in our current culture without feeling like we're one step away from being on the wrong side of history. 
But if you're here today and you are concerned about ultimate justice, if you're concerned about um, justice for ruthless leaders, oppressive systems, inequality in our world, then this passage is actually really good news. (laughs) Because the rage we feel when we see domestic abuse or child poverty, it's not unmerited, and God hates it as well. But this passage shows us that God's wrath isn't something to shove away in the background of the biblical narrative. No, it's actually the best news for those who are tired of suffering, weary of evil, and angry at injustice. So because this passage tells us that we can find comfort in God in, in the face of evil and suffering, Let's go and see how that's possible. I'm sure you want to know how that happens today. So as we've done every week, it's important to recap um, what the book of Revelation is um, and, and how we can read it. If you haven't been here with us in a few weeks or you've never been here with us, this probably was a strange reading for you, but hopefully we can break it down. The book of Revelation is, is a book filled with visions that are given from Jesus Christ to one of his apostles, John. And actually, what it's about is Jesus trying to tell John a bit about what's happened in the past, what's happening in the present, what will happen in the future. It's a series of pictures or images, and they all build on one another to create this, this giant overarching picture of what's happening in human history from the point of where Jesus entered our world and died on the cross to when he returns. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the book of Revelation. It's all of these things to try and give us a better insight. And not just a better insight, but a picture of what our world looks like from heaven's perspective. And we're at the very end of the middle section of the book, which is actually a series of four sevens. Now, if you've been with us, you've known that seven is actually just a number of completion. So anytime you read seven or hear seven from the book of Revelation, it just means complete. Um, So we started off with the seven letters to the seven churches, which means that uh, this letter of Revelation is for all churches at all time. Um, And then we've actually looked at four different angles of human history, which is the middle four sevens. Um, and, And really what we're ending with today is kind of like the last camera angle, you know, at the goal line in the NFL. It's the one that's showing the people who are running towards the end zone. So we get a camera angle from the end to see the completion of all of these things. The first seven we saw was the seven seals, which gave us hope that God's in control of all human history. Then we looked at the seven trumpets, which gives us hope that God answers the prayers of his people and has, that he fights evil and injustice in the world, even right now. Um, then we see the seven signs, which was last week, uh, which showed us actually there's a deeper reality going on in our lives. There's a, there's a subtlety to which the devil uses people and power and things in order to influence us, namely to distract us from worshiping Jesus. And, and last week, we were introduced to, to three characters. First, the dragon, um, which is just a symbol for Satan, um, and his two beasts, which are people he uses to distract people from worshiping Jesus. And we'll see the beast in the passage again today, but that's, that's who the beast is. It's just a person who God is using to distract us from worshiping 
Jesus. So we look today at the seven bowls of God's wrath. So let's dig in and, and see how these bowls are used in the passage. Um, up behind me, you'll see a, a timeline. Um, and it's important to know when these happen. Um, because all, all of the sevens are happening somewhere between when Jesus came and when he returns again. Um, but, but each one of them can happen at a different point in that period. So chapter 15, verse 1, talks about the fact that these bulls are the completion, the last plagues of God's wrath. Um, so it stands to reason that all of these are completed at the end. Um, but... Um, the, the first five hap- happen and are happening now, and the last two are ending at the, or start at the end. So you can kind of think about it a little bit like um, your favorite TV series. Um, the first five bowls are happening throughout the whole series, and the last two that we'll look at are kind of like the two concluding episodes that wrap everything up together. So you can kind of think about it like that. And, and within that, kind of all these seven bowls, we actually see that there's sets of bowls that are doing different things. Um, and throughout the passage, um, we see that God's wrath is poured out on, in three different ways. And each one of them has the effect of, of exposing things for the way that they really are. So they're exposing this. God's wrath is exposing things for the way that they really are. And the first set shows us that the powerful are made powerless the, the second set shows us that light exposes darkness. And then the final set, the final two, shows us that what seems big is actually beaten by what is small. And we'll explain kind of what that means, but it's important for us to jump in and actually look at the bulls, how each of them work. Um, so let's start to open up these bowls, I guess. It's, it's kind of like a sinister deal or no deal. Um, as we're moving along. But stick with me, because uh, there's a lot in here that we can learn. So let's look at the first set of the, the first three bowls where the powerful is made powerless. So the first bowl is poured out on those who worship the beast. And the, the angel pours out his bowl on the land, um, and the beast worshipers break out in festering sores. Again, it's a helpful reminder as we're jumping into this. Um, these are just images. So don't think about the fact that these will be actual sores um, that happen to people. But, but really, they are reminding us from heaven's perspective that something's going on. Um, and in, in this sense, the punishment, um, in a sense, matches the crime. They held the mark of the beast. They follow and are loyal to him, uh, which means they'll be marked by disease and pain. So this bowl exposes the realities that health and security um, can't be found in following the beast. So let's move on to bowl two. It's poured out onto the sea. So the angel pours out the bowl on the sea and it kills every living thing in the sea. This bowl makes the sea uninhabitable and actually really completely unprofitable. Um, so we see the, the downfall of, of the beast in the kingdom, or the beast kingdom next week. Um, and actually, this bowl that, that affects the seas means that the beast's kingdom can no longer produce f- food. Uh, it says commerce is destroyed, merchants 
will no longer be profiting. Um, Everyone goes bankrupt in the beast's kingdom. So really what this is doing is showing God's judgment on the economy of the beast. It's a sign of God's wrath that will come against unfair, unjust economic systems. So bull three. Bull three is actually cutting the life out of the kingdom of the beast. So the angel pours the bull on the rivers and springs, which turns them into blood. Um, And this is like God's wrath cutting off the life source of the beast's kingdom, literally making the source of life, water, into death. So this is a judgment on the corrupt systems and leaders. Um, And it actually says, the angel in this passage says, it's actually against those who have persecuted, beaten down, and killed God's people. So this is the judgment on all of these things, which if we go back, bowl one exposes the illusion of power and wealth and health. Um, Bowl two exposes and, and decimates oppressive economic systems. Bowl three is the destruction of the people and the systems that have persecuted God's people. Now, if you're thinking, you know, the land, the sea, leaders, inhabitants, um, if you've been with us a few weeks, you'll probably think, oh, this has already happened. Um, And this is kind of the idea of there's multiple angles going on in the book of Revelation. Um, And the trumpets actually were potentially the, the start of some of these judgments. And we actually see that the, the differentiation here, again, is that the trumpets might have started God's wrath and judgment against the world, um, but the bulls complete them. The bulls complete them. So what we see in these first three bulls is, is the powerful evil in the world is exposed as powerless. So we're on a roll. Let's keep going. Stick with me. The next set of two is where the light exposes the darkness. So the, first, or the fourth bull is exposing the evil in the kingdom of the beast. The angel pours out the fourth bull on the sun, at which point, according to the passage, it scorches people with fire. Now, this, this doesn't actually mean, again, that, that God will burn people. It's not like he's going to send a solar flare to take out Kim Jong-un or something like that. Um, but instead, it means that, that God's going to cleanse the kingdom by exposing the truth about it. If you think in biblical language, that's the purpose of the light of God. It exposes the realities that lurk in the shadows, the deception that hides behind closed doors. In both five... Um, the throne of the beast is actually covered in darkness. The fifth angel pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast. The throne symbolizes evil and power. So the darkness that, is, that the beast uh, throne is plunged into is a way of symbolizing the fact that the kingdom is now separated from God, which means that all the tenets of control and domination and deception are dismantled, that the true reality of the separation between God and the followers of the beast is actually realized. And as Christians, we believe that all good things come from God. So when God takes his presence away from us, it's a matter of exposing the good gifts that he's had for us are no longer there. 
So when, when this happens, both for the, the narrative of the beast is actually exposed as false, and bull five, it strips the beast of his authority by showing its separation from God and the good gifts of God. So this, these bulls, again, they show that the power of the beast can no longer be in deceiving and controlling people. Because as long as the beast continues to convince his followers to worship him, and, and to believe his kingdom's promises that economic security, wealth, and fame, and power are from him, he's convincing all the people that follow him to look away from God and find security elsewhere. Now, this is a biblical concept that's, that's really foundational to Christianity. It's called idolatry. Now, don't think like, you know, a wooden idol that you bow down before every day and night. But idolatry really is just making good things into God things. Making good things into God things. It's taking the good gifts of God, like a job or health or relationship or just and fair governments, and placing our hope in those things rather than our hope in God. Now, C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain says that, that our Father refreshes us on the journey of life with some pleasant inns. So like pleasant hotels, <laughs> pleasant places to stay, um, but n- will not encourage us to mistake them for home. So that's what's happening here is actually in these judgments, God's show, showing the people that are following the beast. He's exposing that, that their security that they have in these things is actually a lesser version of the security that God brings. So many people who want nothing to do with God, these plagues are showing them what happens when, they're, when they get what they ask for. And these first five bowls are things that have already started. But we'll see that the, the completion of these bowls is what's coming. So now we, we can move on to what happens at the end. Those are the things that have happened and are happening currently. Haven't finished yet, uh, but then we move to what happens at the end. And what's big is beaten by what is small. I love these. So the, the final bowl, or the final two bowls, the first is bowl six, which exposes the vulnerability of the kingdom. So the angel pours the sixth bowl out onto the great Euphrates River, which makes a way for the kings of the east to come and gather for the great war. Now, the Euphrates River um, was actually a river that protected ancient Babylon from foreign invaders from the east. It was, it was kind of like a giant moat for Babylon. Um, and when this dries up, it means that they are completely exposed. So what does the dragon do? What do the beasts do? What, do the e- what does evil do when it's exposed and vulnerable? Well, go with me to verse 12. Chapter 16, verse 12, we see beast, the beast's reaction. It's quite insane. So the sixth angel poured out his bowl in the great Euphrates River, and its water dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs. And they go out 
to the kings of the whole world to gather them to the battle on the great day of God Almighty. I know, weird images again, um, but they're, they're quite helpful. And from, from heaven's perspective, we're, again, these might present as beasts, as frogs, as crazy things, um, but don't think actual dragon or like Loch Ness monster. Uh, these, these creatures are anyone who opposes God and deceives people to do, to do the same. So sometimes in the book of Revelation as well, um, the, 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 the revelation themselves, the visions, actually explain a bit of what's going on. So that happens with the frogs. Otherwise, it'd be really hard to figure out what the frogs are all about. Um, the text says that they are actually demonic spirits that are scrambling to deceive and spread pro- propaganda against or to anyone who's in power so that they will hold rank and fight with them. Now, not to spoil what's going to happen in the next few chapters, um, Ken will handle the, the big battle and everything that's going to happen at the end. Um, but this is what the beast is doing in reaction to being exposed. This, it, the beast is scrambling. <laughs> this is, it seems like a power play, but really it's grasping at straws. So what seems scary at first, the beast might make a comeback. He might come. He might really do this. But in reality, what the beast is trying to do is convince people to come and die with him. And that's the judgment that is happening to the beast's kingdom exposing its vulnerability. So let's move on to bowl seven, where the kingdom of the beast is defeated by a word. So the final plague is where an angel pours out his bowl into the air. So if you think about it, a a bowl's been poured on the land, a bowl's been poured on the sea and the rivers and the inhabitants. Now the the bowl's been poured out on the air. <laughs> there's nowhere else to go. There, there's nowhere else to pour it. And actually, Ephesians 2.2 2 says that Satan is actually called the prince of the power of the air. So this bowl is meant to totally wipe out his kingdom with a word. Totally wipe out his kingdom with a word. We see that actually... After this bowl is poured out, we hear a voice from the temple. This is God's voice saying, it is done. So that's all it takes. <laughs> we see this great battle waging war, but all it takes is an angel pouring out a bowl of God's wrath to say it is done. So this is it. The judgment's complete. The kingdom of the devil has been demolished. Pick up with me in verse 18. We see what happens right after this. There came flashes of lightning, rumbles of thunder, or rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it had ever occurred since mankind had been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with wine, with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away. And the mountains could not be found. So this is the end of the kingdom of the beast. Spoiler alert for next week. God wins. <laughs> um, so in one simple sentence, God ends all unfair world systems and all of those who oppose truth and happiness and wholeness. There is complete destruction. The world is formless. 
and the victory is God's. But that means all evil's gone. That means all suffering's gone. That means all unfairness and justice is gone. And so I hope you're starting to see why this passage is something that we don't need to put away with our winter coats, you know, fall in L.A. <laughs> we, don't, we don't need coats here. Um, but the message of God's judgment against evil is not just something to be disregarded, but it's good news for those who are tired of suffering, weary of evil, and angry at injustice. Because this passage says that God is not only angry about these things too, but he can actually do something about it. So where does this leave us here today? Where does this leave us? You know, you might be feeling overwhelmed and anxious about the heaviness of the world that we're living in right now. What does this passage have to say about us moving forward? Right now, right here. Well, I have a few implications for us coming from this. And some of them are the same that they have been. The first is, um, God is listening, so pray. In your suffering, God is listening, so pray. So we've talked about this repeatedly throughout the series. Um, but the message of this passage is actually the final answer to all of those prayers. These bowls are evidence that God is actually listening to you. Did you ever think where these bowls actually came from? They didn't just pop out of nowhere. We hear about them in chapter 5. They were golden bowls full of incense, which is the prayers of God's people. So this is God acting in direct response to our prayers and cries for him to, to squash evil, to bring to light injustice. And again, in chapter 8, we see that the prayers of God's people are actually gathered up and hurled onto the earth to judge evil. So this passage is an answer to any believer who's ever prayed, how long, O Lord? How long will evil get away with this? How long will suffering continue? How long will I continue to have depression and anxiety? How long will Satan seemingly prevail? Our passage speaks right to the heart of those people because it says that God has an answer. How long will COVID keep sweeping the earth? How long will I be ostracized for my faith? How long? These prayers are answered here in this passage today. They will end. These things will end. So a simple application here is that prayer actually makes a difference. So pray. That's why we pray every Sunday a prayer of petition because we actually think that God hears us. And we actually think that he's not only doing something right now, but he will ultimately do something at the end. God listens, so pray. But since we know God listens, we know God listens because he acts. So that's the second implication. God acts, so trust him. God acts, so trust him. Revelation 16 gives us this this clear picture that God is acting to do something about evil, right? That's what we said all along. But the temptation for the Christian or anyone else that's angry about injustice is to think that it's all up to you to solve the world's problems. That if you don't deal with this issue right here, right now, evil will win. But this passage 
is where the Christian gets the strength to actually love those who hate them. Let's read a passage from Romans 6. Romans 6, 17 to 21. Because it makes sense when you think about it in conjunction with our passage today. It says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If at all possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. How hard is that? (laughs) Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, you should feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will, be, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome, uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So when we feel that overwhelming weight of the injustices that are not only around us, but are directed to us, our call as Christians is not to play the hero and slay the dragon with brute force and domination, to pick up those same stones and sticks that the enemy uses and throw them right back at them. No, instead, if you want to act, pray. (laughs) If you want to act, love your enemies. Care for the sick and the broken. Don't give in to that temptation to lash lash out in anger, to take revenge, because this passage says that that God's at work in doing that already. And he will deliver ultimate justice and final justice. This is that, that kind of tension in the passage, though, because we're still waiting, aren't we? We're still waiting. So I just ordered a, a new coffee grinder. I'm into coffee. Um, and the grinder's the most important thing. We can talk about that later if you want a better coffee. Um, but... One of the things that was so frustrating about it is I I tried to order it not from Amazon, but from like an independent company. Um, But they used a shipping company that lost my grinder here in LA. I know, I know. But after making a few phone calls and emails, we finally confirmed it's lost. So they were like, we're going to send you another one. I was like, great. Um, But we're going to use a whole different service. It'll be fine. I was like, cool. Two-day FedEx. We got this. Um, And when I was expecting it to come, it said it was stopped in Texas. And I was like, come on. (laughs) Are you serious? Like, how hard is it? Amazon does it all the time. (laughs) They just get you your packages right away. And this feeling of tension, you're like, ah, like, it should be there. It should be done. What is taking so long is sometimes how we feel about God's justice against the evil justice against the evil things in our world, isn't it? But God is not a God of Amazon prime justice. (laughs) It's not that quick fix, that easy relief. Our God throughout the book of Revelation is actually calling us to patiently endure, knowing that one day God's wrath will be complete. It will be poured out in his timing. So what is God waiting for? Have you ever thought to ask? Why? Like, if, if evil is so bad, if the world is so broken, why does, he, why does he wait to deal with it? He's waiting for you. 
Look at the call in verse 15 of our passage today. When the final bowl is about to be poured. This is right before the end. What does he say? This is actually Jesus speaking. He says, look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and shamefully exposed. That is, bless the one that does not follow the beast and that exposes themselves for who they are. So along in the passage, we actually get this really harrowing, sad reality of the followers of the beast. And it's meant to be a warning that those who are trusting in the beast and anything other than Jesus are, are being led to their own destruction. So what is their response? Verse 9, look at it with me. It says, when these things were happening, when God was exposing these realities, they actually cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, and they refused to repent. Verse 10 says, when, when that ultimate separation from God and the kingdom comes, people nod their tongues in agony, and instead of turning, they curse God because of their pains and sores. They refused to repent of what they had done. Now, what God is doing in this passage isn't just being mean. He's trying to shout. He's trying to speak. C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts in our pain. And it's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And that's exactly what the judgment of God is doing in this passage. So what is shouting at you today? For those who are not following Jesus, every time you turn on the news, or for those who are following Jesus, anytime you turn on the news, hear about suffering, murder, disasters, anytime you feel discontent in your job, whether the economy's failing, or that your body doesn't match up with what the standards are or your level of fitness. This is God's megaphone telling you that you're trusting in the wrong things. So hear the passionate plea from Jesus today because God has not yet poured out all his wrath on evil and suffering and injustice because he's waiting for you. 2 Peter 3, 8 to 10 also says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So, for the Christian, this plea from Jesus is for you to not give up, even though the pressure seems unbearable. And you're waiting not only in endurance for Christ, but you're waiting for others to turn to him. So don't give up. And if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, don't miss this. Don't delay. There will be an end to God's patience. A day when you see what a life without God really looks like. But Jesus doesn't just leave us there to figure it out on our own. In fact, the reason Jesus can even give this call, this, this call to turn to him and to patiently endure, 
is because everything in this passage, in the most vivid and extreme sense, was experienced by Jesus when he died on a cross. Jesus was perfect. He, He didn't succumb to earthly security, but depended completely on the Father. He didn't lash out against authority and power. Instead, he laid down his life. He did all of that for you and for me when we were his enemies. He experienced the full wrath of God and he drank the cup for us as he was shamefully exposed hanging on a Roman cross. And Revelation 15, 1 talks about that this is the final, this is the completion of God's wrath, these bulls. But I can't help but hear the words at this, the end of this passage in here, it is done, and not think about what Jesus said in John 19, 30. What did he say on the cross? It is finished. So for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, God's wrath is complete for you 2,000 years ago. You have no fear going forward. Because Jesus didn't stay dead, and he rose from the grave, according to the scriptures, we can be assured that those who wait patiently are waiting for glory. Revelation 21, 4 to 7, is what we're waiting for. It says, listen to this, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Not making all new things, making everything new. So then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. To those who are victorious, They will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. So the wrath and judgment of God is good news for us today, for those who are tired of suffering, weary of evil, and angry at injustice, because God listens, and he acts, but he also waits. Waits for all to turn to him to trust in the fact that his wrath was complete in Jesus on the cross for you 2,000 years ago. So listen to his call today. Patiently endure. And if you have not put your trust in Jesus, take time today to think about what that looks like. So let's pray. Ask the Lord for that help. Lord, we come to you. And we confess that we so often look for security and hope and things other than you. But I pray that as we go throughout our week and see that the things that we look for hope in just let us down, that we know that you are calling us to come back to you. Lord, we pray that we could pray that we could be patient and endure, but that we would know the truth. Lord, we pray against the evil and injustice in this world. Give our hearts peace that you are taking care of it and you will take care of it ultimately one day. Let us live in light of this today, God. For you are holy and true. Amen.